my CGI guy is like, oh, I read the scene. It sounds like astral projection. This is an astral projection scene. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that is. What is astral projection? <laughs> Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Owner Tukel is on the show. Owner is a New York-based actor, screenwriter, producer, and director. He's also a musician, novelist, graphic novelist, and children's book author. I wish I could be just one of those things. I'm probably leaving out other areas of creative expertise because this guy is a creative polymath. Previous films include Applesauce, Catfight with Anne Heche and Sandra Oh, Black Magic for White Boys, and The Misogynist, among many other films. Owner's most recent film is Scenes from an Empty Church, which he wrote and directed during the pandemic, starring Kevin Corrigan, Max Casella, Thomas J. Ryan, and Paul Reiser. This film follows two priests, Corrigan and Ryan, in New York City in the height of the pandemic, as they try to balance the restrictions of the quarantine and the need of their friends and parishioners for human connection. I loved this film because it tackled the subject of the pandemic during the pandemic, and despite the characters being priests, it managed to be funny and not take itself too seriously, while also being smart and heartfelt. If the length of this interview doesn't make it obvious already, I really enjoyed talking to Owner. We covered lots of subjects, like creating when struggling with grief or trauma, the hustle required of independent filmmakers in New York, advice for filmmakers trying to break into the industry, and the challenges of living in New York versus Los Angeles as a filmmaker. We also talked about how he was able to not just write and direct a movie during the pandemic, when many artists were not able to create anything, but also crank out a graphic novel and, get this, adapt John Carpenter's 1978 film Halloween into a children's book. If you stick around to the end, Owner tells the hilarious story of how he was kicked off of comedian Doug Benson's podcast not once, but twice. And while the audio-only version of this podcast is longer than most, we actually trimmed this chat down quite a bit. But we left what we cut on YouTube as bonus content. So if you want to check out our full, unedited conversation, which includes owner interviewing me for about 10 minutes before I'm able to ask a single question, go check it out. It's a lot of fun. So without further ado, let's jump into the abridged version of my chat with the immensely talented and prolific filmmaker, Owner Tikal. You're in New York, you're making films, and you are prolific in the work that you're doing in acting and directing and writing. And it has to be just really, hard. really hard and scary to it's not, you know. Yeah, go ahead. To, to not what? To, to not know where your next job is going to oh, be, wh oh, whether sure. this is going to land, you know, wh am I going to get paid? There's so much to unpack there. So just, and feel free to, to jump in anytime because I'll just start rambling forever about this. Um, it, it gets it gets harder as you get older in the sense of being kind of like very, very independent, trying to track down, uh, you know, independent um, financiers, not pitching your products, projects to, to studios and streaming services. I mean, there's so many services, there's so much film out there. Oh, TV shows and stuff being made, so many avenues to try to get your work um, financed. 
but then you have to make concessions because you have teams of people normally in suits who are giving you notes and you know they have to dictate what the what the, the themes are and, and what you can and can't say or do and I have a big mouth and I like to say things I don't like people telling me what to do or say right <laughs> but the, the the scary thing is as you get older it's like what am I doing? What, where is my security really? Like how long can I keep doing this? And, and what is it all for? Because I, I'm proud of the work that I do, but it doesn't really get seen. It never really makes any money. I've only had a couple of movies who've made money and I've made 10 movies in the last 10 years in New York, nine movies in the last 10 years in New York. Only two of them have, have made money. Um, and it's, it's difficult because, you know, I've, I, I, I do work. I, I do have a backup plan. There's always been a backup plan. You know, my, my plan is if everything fell through, um, I, I would continue to work as an editor and a motion designer because that's what I do. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I make a living. And I, I bought a place in North Carolina in Durham, North Carolina, 12 years ago. And if everything blew up in my face in New York and I expect it's going to any, any day now, the goal <laughs> would be to go back to North Carolina and maybe, you know, start a production company there or do editing, freelance uh, editing there because there's so many gigs and jobs. So there's always that and that's always uh, there. And But for some, for some reason, I'm always able to find someone who's able to give me a little bit of money to make my strange weird twisted movies that I want to make. No, not so much scenes from an empty church was, a was a, a, trying to go in a different direction from my normal work. I, I don't know if you've seen anything besides scenes from an empty church, but my work is usually pretty dark and cynical and twisted and very uh, anti, uh, you know, uh, contrarian. So what's, in the culture, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you say, don't talk about this, I want to talk about that. Don't right. say this, I want to say that. And uh, I'm going to make a movie actually in the fall. The last two movies that I've made, The Scenes from an Empty Church and a movie that I have coming out in the fall, they're just a, they're just kind of detours from what I normally do. I like to criticize the culture and make fun of the culture. And I'm going to get back to that in the, in the fall and winter with this project that I'm doing. But, you know, we have very, very little money. I had a bunch of investors lined up ready to write me a check. I had a meeting. I had a bunch of investors are like, Warner, you're so good in a room. You're so good at pitching. And, you know, I have a lot of confidence in that regard, not trying to raise millions of dollars. We're talking about, you know, 80,000, 90,000, $120,000. And I'm pretty good about getting that kind of money. And, um, but I've been wanting to say something really, I've been wanting to say something very specific. That's very, very bold and brave. And, and, you know, it's going to piss some people off, but that, I look, it has, some things have to be said, right. I, I, to try to find a greater truth in a way. Um, right. Uh, and then we can get back to that in terms of scenes from an empty church, why we chose to say certain things and didn't uh, say certain things regarding, you know, priests and abuse. We wanted to, you know, we, we'll get to that, obviously. You know what I mean? I, I'd like to talk about those things, but that's also your work. And I think that's fascinating. I want to talk about the creative process as well. But um, so but these these investors were all about writing me a check until I told them what the subject matter of this new movie was. And they're like, listen, we love you. You're great in a room, but we can't invest in this. But then you find two investors who are like, you know what? The chances that this is going to make money are very small, but none of your other films have made me money. So why not? Why don't we do this? I mean, there's that chance that maybe there'll be a bold distributor out there or a bold, a film festival bold enough to show this movie. And look, after insipid and vapid movies like the human centipede that IFC released what's sacred anymore what, what right. can't can or can't be allowed which I thought you know uh, in terms of a horror film 
the absolute terror, the terror of like the idea of it, it's, it, it works as a horror film. When you just think about what it's about, the human centipede, mm-hmm. but yeah, then again, it's, I mean, it's not a good movie. So it's like, get, give me that idea, <laughs> but you make a good movie and I'll be into it. I thought the second one was way better than the first. I didn't watch the third one, but <laughs> I'm not going in that territory. I'm more going into something a little bit more, hopefully more intellectual, more about ideas and not just about visceral um, uh, kind of gross someone out with some, something visceral and disgusting and scatological. Although this new movie is kind of scatological. Are you, but, are you are you talking about the cold dead look in your eyes or something else? Oh uh, no no that's that's different. The, the next thing I'm going to do in the fall, the, the oh, okay. cold dead look in your eyes, French experimental kind of abstract uh, homoerotic sci-fi movie about uh, which is kind of existential. I, we we take some risk there. We we mm-hmm. do take some risk, but it, I don't think it's going to offend. It's not offensive. It's not meant to provoke. It's meant to provoke. Um, uh, we're, we're, it's meant to. It's a mystery. It's a puzzle for the audience to solve. You know, I usually don't have a lot of subtext in my movies. All the text is right on the surface. It's pretty easy to follow my movies. But with um, that cold, dead look in your eyes, it is kind of a puzzle that we want people to solve. And I don't think it's not going to piss anyone off. It might frustrate people. People might hate it. You know, but mm-hmm. but I think people are going to like it too. But no, yeah. the new one is. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to demystify it. Talk about it too soon. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's just about the, the culture that we're in and and the vitriolic kind of uh, fractured state of uh, discourse that's there and all information overload and everybody talking at each other. And, you know, I, I know about those things because I tend to talk at people, too. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. but it's cool. It's like it's, it's good to be inspired. Like I'm inspired. Uh, I still want to make things at the age of 49. I'm going to turn 50 next year. And I'm thinking. How much longer can I do this? How much longer can I make these tiny budget independent films that no one really sees? I get criticized a lot from friends and colleagues who who believe in me and they think that I can make bigger projects with with bigger budgets. Um, but and I try to get I try to get some of that stuff made. I try to you know I've got a couple of bigger projects, but it takes time and I like to work. I like the process. I'm excited about it. I've been in New York for 10 years and I, I'm here, you know, to make films and to, or, or music or whatever. I, I, I've been making a lot of music lately too, which I really fucking love, you know, I That's love music. Awesome. So, so yeah. Um, but there is a fear. There's this fear mainly of God damn, what am I doing with my life? What have I done with my life? I could have maybe gone to LA 10 or 12 years ago and tried to get in the game, try to penetrate the industry and pitch things. Cause I've got a lot of ideas. I've got a lot of marketable ideas and I didn't do that. I chose instead to just become this kind of underground outsider artist. And in the sense of be, having a body of work that I'm proud of, I think I'm, I've accomplished something. I'm successful in that regard, but you know, I have these insecurities as I get older about, the sacrifices I've made, like choosing not to have a family or not get married and to live a life of a bohemian, a single bohemian who has very low overhead so that I can keep doing these kind of projects that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that are, that are an expression of, of, of who I am, you know? So I, it's, it's, it's difficult, but at the same time being single, not having kids, it, there's a it's a very easy to take care of yourself if you're relatively healthy you know what right, i mean like right. uh, so i feel lucky in that regard and i think about things like money and like if everything the wheels were to come off and, and even during the covid when a lot of my freelance gigs dried up i'm like well i'm not making the kind of money i was making before but then again i i don't have any amounts to feed you know just myself so yeah 
Are you married? Are you married or 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 sing? What what's your? I'm married with three adult daughters. Oh wow! Yeah, twenty, twenty-three, and I've got a grandbaby living with me right now. So, oh my god, that's amazing! Three daughters. What what what? What's the ages? So twenty, twenty-three, and almost thirty. And my middle child has a baby that they're both living with me right now. And I'm your age. I'm forty-nine. So so nineteen, you had your first child at nineteen. No, so. 21, I married my, or got together with my wife who had a child from a previous relationship. So she's my stepdaughter who's almost 30. And then we had two children together. Wow. It's quite a um, challenge to, you know, juggle family, podcast, work, all of those things. Uh, But I, I hear you on those choices because every choice that you make to go in a certain direction is conversely a choice to not go in a different direction. And it is absolutely a sacrifice to live in a bohemian lifestyle to support your film habit, if that's what you want to put it. Yeah. Uh, do you think living in New York is a sacrifice versus LA because it is more of an art film town as opposed to Hollywood town where you have, like you were saying, all these connections to studio executives? Yeah, you know, if I lived in LA, you know, it, it, here's the thing: you have more access, I think, to actors that mean something when it comes to getting something financed. You know what I mean? I think, in a way, you have a benefit of living in LA. I think I've never lived out there, I've visited. You know, I, I don't think if I lived in LA or New York, I think I'd be still be doing the same thing. I'd be trying to make movies one a year or one every couple of years. And but I think I would, because I know some actors who are a little bit more recognizable out there. Um, it might, I probably would play the game. I would try to package movies. I would try to write a script, find my actor friends who are somewhat of notes and package them, put them, uh, get them attached to the project. I would go to studios and I would pitch. I've never pitched anyone in my life in terms of a studio. I pitch investors all the time. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just think it would be different. You know, I don't mm-hmm. like to drive so much. I mean, I like to drive like road trips. I don't like to drive on a daily basis in the city and I don't like being stuck in traffic. Right. So in that sense, that's probably why I'm not on the West Coast. Also, I was born on the East Coast. My, I have family in North Carolina and Florida. I I don't know. I'm just an East Coast kind of guy. You know, I'm a, mm-hmm. I, I like the cold weather. I like the mountains. I mean, I know all that stuff's in, in, in California as well. But, uh, I, you know, I, I for me, um, God, I just it just was never... I just never, I, I just never, I just always loved New York. I've always been beholden to New York. I've always romanticized New York. And when I lived in North Carolina in movies and in the books I read, it's just that uh, New York was always kind of my town. Every time I visited it, it just, I connected with the the energy of the streets and the people here, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all jammed in together. And I like my solitude and I like to be alone and I like to work, but there was something about the frenzied energy of the streets of New York and the people here that I always connect with. It's also... A lot of bars here. I, I like to drink. I don't drink quite, quite like I used to, you know. Um, and uh, L.A., just something about it being spread out. I mean, when I've visited L.A., I've had a blast. But uh, it feels like, I don't know, maybe I'd be more cloistered or maybe I'd, I'd stick to my apartment or my house and I wouldn't go out as much. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, never, but I haven't thought about it. I, look, I've never done the agent thing, the manager thing. No one's ever approached me. I've never actually actively tried to seek management. I had a, I had a, a manager for my acting um, for a while. And and that was cool. He got me a lot of auditions and stuff. And so let's go back to North Carolina days. You grew up in North Carolina 
And the weirdest town I can think of, or the most artsy town I can think of in North Carolina is Asheville. So how artsy was your town? I grew up in a very small Southern town called Taylorsville, North Carolina. It was about an hour and a half from Asheville, but I never went to Asheville growing up. It was a very small Southern town, Baptist, Southern Baptist town, I should say, Baptist, you know, uh, lots of religion, very, very, you know, conservative religion, but also very, very cool. I would call them like conservative, like hippies, I guess, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It was in the foothills, very beautiful pastoral rolling hills and beautiful weather. And, um, but it was great. Like we were, my parents were immigrants. They came here from Turkey and they were welcomed with open arms in Taylorsville, North Carolina. You know, Mm. we never, we were always accepted. I mean, my dad was a doctor. So, you know, had that, he had that thing going for you. You know what I mean? There's a status that you get when, when you're the, when you're the doctor's kids, you know what I mean? Like, but, uh, but yeah, um, it was, it was a great experience. I, I have dear friends who, uh, from Taylorsville, you know, one of my best friends I used to make movies with, he got me into making films. My friend, my friend Kirk, he manages the Bowery Hotel, which is like a seven minute walk from my apartment in New York. Bowery Hotel is a really trendy, cool hotel in New York. Um, so, you know, my, the, my roots of making films started in, in Taylorsville, North Carolina in the eighth grade, making a, a, a VHS horror film called camp out with death <laughs> you know the summer of 2000 VHS. i don't know yeah vhs i guess it was nice. i was born in 72 so it might have been 84 85 you know slasher films were big we loved slasher films we watched them all the time my friend kirk wilson i'll never forget it he walked up to me in middle school and said we're gonna make a horror film with paul chung's video camera and it's gonna be called camp out with death <laughs> he had i mean it was like it was just that concept it was very Roger Corman-esque. I mean, because yeah. right, it was just the title itself and the and the sleazy, trashy nature of it. And at that moment, I was like, that sounds amazing, but how is that possible? And then yeah. um, sure enough, we spent, you know, uh, the summer shooting this fun slasher film that's uh, you know, that exists on VHS somewhere. And we ed- <laughs> you know, we edit it in camera, shoot everything in sequence. Uh-huh. Any of the music that was part of the scene is diegetic music or not, yeah, diegetic. I don't care. I always get those confused, diegetic, non-diegetic. The music within the scene, if it's um no non-diet non-diegetic music is when you it's not supposed to be actually in the scene, but we would still it would be in the scene playing because we had no choice. You know in what a I boom mean? Box so, somewhere? Yeah, yeah, we'd have a boom box out there playing <laughs> the horror score. Nice. And we would compose on our pianos. We would like we composed the scary music and we would rip-offs of like, you know, Halloween John Carpenter's score and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that stuff was a blast. And then we'd spend the next few years uh in high school and middle school just making silly you know movies that were spoofs of whatever genres that we were into we made break dancing we had break dancing spoofs we had oh, yeah. horror films we had sci-fi we it was fun i mean like we it was a blast and then when i got to college i studied film and i studied graphic design because my mom was very pragmatic and she said look study film be a filmmaker that's great but always has something to fall back on because she was very you know, she was just very practical about those things, you know, because she knew it was tough. And she's like, look, if you can't make a living being a filmmaker, just have something else to fall back on. And so she encouraged me to be a graphic designer and editor. And and, and so I, I went, I double majored in film and journalism. There was a graphic design uh, sequence in the journalism department at, at, at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in North Carolina. Great school, great public school, you know. Yeah. And so how did you make the leap into actually shooting your first film as a writer director? 
Yeah, so there were a lot of films being made in North Carolina in the late 80s and early 90s and still to this day. It's you know, I think the terrain and stuff like that. You got mountains, you got the beach, you got the city, you know, Charlotte and Raleigh, you got the cities and stuff. So um I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. It was a little coastal town about two and a half hours where I went to college. And there was a lot of production there, although I never got into production there. I just went there thinking I would get into the production there. There was a show called Dawson's Creek that was shooting there in the 90s. Uh, Blue Velvet was shot there in the, I think, the late 80s. Um, lots of movies. A lot of amazing films were shot there. I went there and then um, I just waited tables and worked at a local TV station as an editor and saved some money um, and made a, a, a movie it was in the, this was 1996, made a black and white 16 millimeter movie called House of Pancakes. I put, I probably saved six or $7,000. My dad gave me a few thousand for a graduation present that I used. Um, my friend Clifford McCurdy ended up putting like $3,000 of his own money in it. And we made this $10,000 feature film called um, House of Pancakes uh, in 1996. Um, and this was, you know, I was very influenced by Kevin Smith's Clerks. I don't know if you know much about the mm-hmm. 90s, a kind of new yep. wave of independent cinema, Whit Stillman, Richard Linklater, uh, Robert Rodriguez, all, all those people I was like, you know, very influenced by. So ended up making it. And I didn't know anything about film festivals. I didn't know anything about Sundance. I didn't really submit it anywhere. And it kind of found this distributor in New Jersey called EI Cinema that ended up releasing it on VHS. But that was a big deal in 96, you know, to get a box of VHS tapes with a really cool fancy cover that was shrink wrapped <laughs> to get to, they got it distributed. It got into a couple of Hollywood video stores, which was a, you know, a chain back uh-huh. then competing with, um, competing with Blockbuster. People yeah. would call me from Oregon or, or, or you know, C- Seattle or Midwest, the Midwest and say that they would see copies of my movie in the, on, on the, on the shelves, which was, again, was very exciting, you know, getting interviews and getting a little press and in weird underground film magazines, all that st- stuff was very fun and very um, inspiring for a, uh, uh, you know, a 24 year old kid out of college who, I thought he wanted to, I, I did and, and thought I wanted to be a filmmaker and I was really inspired for about six years in Wilmington to make movies. I ended up convincing some people a few years later to give me 15,000 to make a vampire film called Drawing Blood. I ended up selling that to a company called Troma in New York. This is when my real love affair with New York began because Troma was a little, you know, Lloyd Kaufman, Michael Hurst, they, they've been the Toxic Avenger and all these crazy, they make all these crazy, weird kind of uh, contrarian movies in the 80s and 90s, like, um, which were really fun and bloody and ridiculous and, and cheap and fantastic. And we love trauma. I still really respect trauma. Um, but yeah, I sold the movie. We sold the movie to them and the, uh, uh, mid nineties and got our investors their money back late nineties and then got our investors their money back. And then we got some investors to invest in a bigger budgeted movie called Dingalingless. Oh, I heard about, about that one. <laughs> yeah. Dingalingless is cool. Dingalingless was kind of the movie that I thought was going to put me on the map. It was my first real heartbreak. You know, mm. um, we made this beautiful movie that was on 35 millimeter with a great tiny budget, but it looks like a $2 million movie. Everyone who saw it, it blew their blew their minds. So funny, so original. It's actually more relevant now than it was 20 years ago. It's about sexuality. It's about gender identity. It's about masculinity. It's about cast uh, the the um, having your uh, your your masculinity challenged. 
It's about homophobia. It's about Me Too sins of um, treating women with, uh, with, with misogynistically and like in the sins of your past um, coming back to haunt you. It's a fantastic movie and still holds up. It's got a, a gentleman named Robert Longstreet in it who's actually doing very well right now. He's going to be in the new Halloween Kills mm. movie that's coming out. I don't know, you're probably not into horror films, I'm guessing. Yeah, right? yeah, oh, you are? Yeah. Um, he's in, on a show uh, called uh, Midnight Mass that was just released mm. on yep. Netflix. He's doing very well. Beautiful man. One of my, one of my really dear friends. And, and, it was, and I met him in Wilmington. And so we made this movie and thought it was going to do so well and we thought it was going to get into all these festivals we thought it was going to get bought we thought it was going to get distributed and you know so many companies would watch it and say god this is a great 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 movie but we can't release this like <laughs> and it really and, and it really like it was it was it was heartbreaking but it was discouraging because everything i had read and learned about independent film up to that point was be brave, be bold, make something that no one else is doing and say something that no one else is brave enough to say. That's what independent film is supposed to be about after all, you know, because the corporations aren't going to say anything that challenging. They're all the Hollywood studios aren't going to say anything that, you know, um, outrageous. I mean, they'll say things that are, you know, um, relevant to, 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 to politics or whatever, to human rights, which is good. They've always been good about that, but, uh, but they won't say anything truly weird. I, I, I can't say they never do that. Of course they make weird movies all the time. It was just a, it was a punch in the gut and um, it, it really, I lost a lot of confidence in the industry and I stopped making movies for several years after that. Oh, know? wow. Oh, that's, yeah. that's too bad. I, yeah, I yeah. looked for that film. I couldn't find it easily. So, um, yeah, I tried to do a deep dive on your catalog and I watched, um, uh, cat fight, applesauce, uh, Ving, the Ving Rhames short on, on oh, YouTube yeah, yeah. that you acted in. And, uh, man, what a, what a catalog you've put together. What a filmography, yeah, and, I'm really uh, proud. I think I had a I had a thing there where I did Summer of Blood, Applesauce, Catfight, Black Magic for White Boys, and The Misogynist. I'm really proud of those five movies together. I don't think Catfight's my strongest movie, but it was definitely impressive with the cast and what we did for the money. And it got into the Toronto Film Festival, sold for a lot of money, which and a lot of people don't know that. We we premiered on a Friday, sold for seven figures on a Saturday. I'm not wow. saying I saw a lot of that money, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I saw some of it, but right. it was, uh, it was very successful, but, but we weren't able to really promote that aspect of it because Netflix didn't want us to, there was something in the contract that said we couldn't, it, it, there could be a press release. Um, but, but yeah, I've had a lot of luck and I'm very grateful for uh, the, you know, being able to find financing and get movies made. And mm -hmm. I'm proud that I've kind of stuck to my guns and tried to say things that were a little bit outspoken and crazy. I, you know, it gets discouraging because it's like you, you, you think the distributors are, are going to come and, and embrace you and, and, and release your movies and say, look, this is a little bit different, a little off the beaten path. Hasn't happened that way, unfortunately, but there's still a few investors that I'll find who will again write me a check, you know. But thank mm -hmm. you for for watching some of that stuff. I can send you a link to Ding a Lingless. It's only exists on DVD. And one of the things I thought about doing is going and getting all the film, um, all the 35 millimeter film reels, and transferring it all, getting it retelecined, which is like to you know scanned and everything to mm -hmm. 4K, and maybe re-editing it for streaming. You know, That'd again, be great. it's it's it really still holds up. Yeah, my first three movies were shot on film. 
And I stopped making films for about a decade. And I decided to get back into it when I moved to New York because of these, uh, the, the Canon, uh, Canon 7D camera, which is a really affordable $2,000 camera that came out in the uh, 2010 or so or 2009. And for me, it, like, it just had a really cool film look. It looked more like film than anything mm-hmm. up to that point and was just small. It looked like a little 35 millimeter in a still camera. And I thought, well, shit, maybe I can. And there was the mumblecore movement that was happening, you know, the Andrew Bajowski and, 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 and all the mumblecore, the Duplass brothers and all the films that were being right. made in the, in the late eighties. So it was a new wave thing happening there. And I thought, well, maybe I can get into New York, go to New York and start making movies again. Cause I'd always loved New York. I'd always thought it's always been a dream of mine to make movies in New York. And it's like, oh, now it's kind of possible because you were seeing all these kind of weird New York low budget movies being made in New York. You know what I mean? With um, Mm -hmm. mutual appreciation, I think was shot in New York. And I don't know. I think it, no, maybe that was shot in Austin. Um, But, but anyway, yeah, it was, I think Swanberg was making some films in New York at the time. And they were just so intimate and small and they weren't very cinematic, but there was something about them that drew you in and I was like, well, I was inspired. So I made a movie called Richard's Wedding that was very much like inspired by Mumblecore. And after that, I was like, well, that was cool. But I want to make things that are a little bit more genre oriented. It's more my style, you know? Right. Have you worked with the Black Magic camera? I've heard a lot about that. Yeah. Well, one of the, yeah, absolutely. My, my DP on my French film, Eric LaPlanta, um, we shot with two FS7s. And then we, we did a lot of... Um, kind of a gimbal like it's kind of like a steady cam it's kind of like a cheaper version of a steady cam it's a little bit easier to maneuver with mm-hmm. and we we did some one camera stuff with that and when we had the gimbal we used his black magic nice and it, it looked amazing like uh, we we're able to really get some movement there on the camera because it was necessary for some of the scenes given a really kinetic kind of chaotic kind of feel but it's be- it's a beautiful camera. You couldn't really tell the difference when it was color corrected between what was the black magic and the FS7. I love the FS7 as a camera. It might be my favorite camera. We shot Seats from an Empty Church on a red camera. My friend Andrew Shimon was the DP, and I really love the look of that too. Oh, that's we just yeah. Kept, yeah, we kept the camera landlocked locked a lot of the time, and I just think it's got a really confident look, even though it was a crew of five people on set. You know, we had a we had an assistant camera person a red camera, a sound guy, a couple of producers on set. And that was really it, you know? Yeah. Well, that was pre-vaccine, right? I mean, you were shooting in the pandemic pre-vaccine. So what were the protocols for doing that safely? Well, you know, there's the SAG, you know, the the union for actors, right? Screen Actors Guild. And they usually set um, rules and stuff that you have to follow if you have SAG actors, which we did. Kevin, I mean, almost all of our actors were SAG actors. Brilliant cast. Kevin Corrigan, Mass Casella, Thomas J. Ryan, Craig Bierko, um, uh, Natalie Carter. Um, So SAG was still figuring out their protocols. You know, now, now I have... Of producer friends who are making movies and you know they're they're making they have budgets of three hundred thousand four hundred thousand dollars and the sag protocols all the different um facts test tests you have to get like you know they're 250 dollars a test for extras and for all this stuff is adding another 10 percent to their bottom line which is like mm-hmm. another 30 or forty thousand dollars you know our budget was was so minuscule and sag hadn't figured out the protocols yet everyone had to get so basically we everyone had to get tested um, before they shot, you know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. now everyone has to get tested every other day or something, I believe. Right. Everyone had to, had to get tested and we had to have an onset nurse 
uh, or COVID specialist. I think it was a nurse at the time. Now there's actually a COVID specialist. You can get trained or go through some, some kind of orientation, um, who is, uh, checks people's temperatures and, and, and check, you know, make sure everyone's feeling okay and Mm -hmm. safe and, and that kind of thing. I can't remember if we were supposed to get COVID tests every day. We didn't, you know what I mean? So we may have broken some of those rules, but (laughs) we, everyone got tested before they, we, we only shot for 10 days and everyone got tested, I think at least twice, you know, but it was such a, it was such, I was angry because I'm like, why it's a crew of, it's a crew of six people. We have 10 people in the cast and it is only two to three actors on screen at one time. You're making everybody go to the clinics to get checked when they're going to be around the chances of getting COVID are increased by having to go right, there. Right. So it was, um, it was frustrating, but you know, co- uh, SAG is just trying to protect their, you know, their, their union delegate, their, their members, I guess, you know, yeah. it was cool. We were all a little bit nervous and that kind of stress There's always low level stress when you make a movie, but the actors, the care, you know, the characters in the movie are supposed to be a little bit stressed because of COVID. So, you know, the actors were able to use the real stress that they mm-hmm. were feeling to inform <laughs> their characters a little bit, you know? Well, the, the uncertainty too about Max's character, Paul, where um, he, right. he's like, you know, I, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. And I, why should I wear a mask? And, and his friend, Andrew, Father, Father Andrew. Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in the really captured so well, the ambiguity of the situation and what are the social protocols and the medical protocols? How do you navigate that? How do you balance the fact that we all need human connection and this is a friend, you trust this friend, but of course now we know it doesn't matter if you trust them or not. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, But you could see that in Kevin's character's eyes. What do I do here? And so let's talk about that writing process. You obviously didn't start writing this until after the pandemic hit. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's very pandemic focused and oriented, and how long did it take you to write it and get to production, get to actual filming? We we knew that we had a church to shoot in in um, the winter of 2019. My friend Andrew Shemin, who helped me co-write the story and who shot the movie and produced the movie, we were always going to make a movie in a church. Oh, right, because okay. he has this beautiful Catholic church that we had access to, which is like, you know, with, with independent film and just like real estate, location is everything, you know. We mm-hmm. don't have the money to, to have amazing – sometimes I have the money to have decent production design. And when I have the money and I can afford it, I'll hire an amazing production designer like S.D. Braverman, who is a production designer on Misogynist. Black Magic for White Boys and Catfight. But in this case, we didn't have the money for production design or a designer. So it's like, okay, we have this beautiful church, though. Anywhere you put the camera, it's just immaculate. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. It's the lighting's great. Yeah. yeah natural yeah. lighting. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we don't have a lot of lights. We don't have a lot of gear. And we don't have a lot of time to light things. So let's find something with beautiful lighting and that already looks great. And Andrew was like, we've got a church. Let's shoot in this church. And so we were always thinking about what we're going to make in the church. When the pandemic happened and we got shut down in March, we felt like, oh, let's do it now. Let's shoot. Because that church, beautiful church on 34th Street in, uh, near Hell's Kitchen in New York, uh, it, 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 it was closed. So we could use it as long as we wanted. Um, Father Rutler, who was the, the main priest at the time at that church, he would, gave us his blessing. He was fantastic. And we had this amazing church to, to use. So I, I wrote a script called Sisters and Brothers in March 
that was way, way, way too ambitious. It was, um, it was, you know, a group of uh, priests, seven or eight priests who lived in this church. There was a, there was a COVID shutdown and there was another, there was um, uh, a nunnery with like eight or nine nuns or uh, 10 or 11 nuns, a lot of nuns, right? A dozen nuns who, who um, their, their place, there's not COVID that's infecting this. uh, It's something else. It's actually way worse. The, the disease that's happening in this movie kills you almost instantly. Like if you get it, you are going to die. It's way more terrifying. So these nuns, their, their nunnery is infected. Someone dies and they actually have to, the place burns. They have to uh, burn the place down, I think, because it's so infected, something like that, where they have nowhere to stay. And it's about nuns and priests staying together during COVID. And like, just, it, that was the, that was the script, you know what I mean? And all these things that, happened during COVID. It's so different. And then they start like this uh, podcast for people, you know, they, or this video vlog so that people can actually experience. Cause that's not in the mo- that movie. We, I toyed with doing that, but I, I, I kind of avoided it. And people are connecting with the, with the church and it's nuns and, and priests all together. And we talk about, you know, power structures and stuff like that and the inherent misogyny of uh, of the church and there's a kind of a power swap and it's funny and great and i really loved it but it's like i can't make this absurd we I, i'm not going to raise money for this and we can't do this so i i shared it with andrew we all both liked the script a lot it's got some beautiful things in it and i probably spent you know two weeks two three weeks writing that i will bang out a script very quickly when i'm inspired wow and a lot of people think that i write a script in two weeks and that's it that's not even remotely the case I am rewriting constantly, 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 trying to get as many iterations, as many drafts of the script as possible before we start shooting. Um, always the case. Uh, so, you know, I might bang out a first draft in 10 days, to, but then I'll spend months rewriting it. Right. We didn't have, we, so I think I had, when I decided to scale everything down and make it way more intimate, just make it about these two priests who lost their, um, their other priest, the head priest, Father Brooks. When I decided to change it and make it like that, um, I think I probably spent another, you know, two weeks writing the first draft and then, you know, another week polishing it, shared it with Kevin Corrigan, shared it with the other actors. When we got the cast, we'd have a reading. And then after the reading, I would continue to rewrite as we pursued funding, as we got into pre-production. So I'm guessing March 15th, middle of March, Ides of March through 2020, right? 2020. Right right after the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Through July of 2020. April, May, June, July, about four months of working on the script. You know what I mean? Cause mm-hmm. I would rewrite, we would do readings. We would discuss things. People would throw me ideas. Andrew Shimon was indispensable. All the actors were indispensable for, for giving input to, to what the, the themes of the script should be and what actually should happen in the script. The Paul Reiser scene, when we cast him, you know, we spent, we did 11 drafts of his scene, you know, mm. Paul Reiser is an incredible writer himself. So, and he's, he's stubborn for good reason. He's, he's brilliant. He's been working in the industry for, you know, 40 years. So he was very, very, uh, you know, stubborn about what he wanted. And so we'd have disagreements here and there, but, but we got those pages written and I think he's fantastic. So, you know, he, he, he co-wrote a lot of his, he, he wrote mm. a lot of his scene. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Andrew Shemin, and I would go back and forth with emails. I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know a lot about religion. And he is a polymath. He's brilliant. He's a, he's a genius. So we would go back and forth with long emails where I, w- I was basically Paul. Yeah. I would ask a ton of questions and Andrew would, would give me answers. And I would use kind of our emails to structure some of the more technical stuff. 
right. in the movie. You know, Andrew well, the, Shimon himself. The dueling is, scripture, the dueling scripture scene blew me away with the uh, Oh yeah. Father um Andrew back and forth with Father Oh, Father James, yeah. Father yeah. James, the, you know, they're Father just James, throwing yeah. Bible quotes back and forth at each other. Yeah, I was like, this director and writer really knew his Bible stuff. <laughs> yeah, but you know something, there there's it's so easy now. It's you, you can cheat so easily. You go to Google, you type up like what are like the 50 best Bible verses or, or 50 Bible verses about faith or about fear, you know, and right. you go through and you pick them. Like, I feel like it's a lot easier to sound smart or be erudite with Google now, you know right, what I mean? Right. Because you're just like, if you're good at searching for things, I mean, I didn't, we don't do that throughout the movie, but on something like that, where we're like, we got to get some great Bible verses. Of course, I don't think Shimon, I could have gone to Shimon and said, what are some great Bible verses about fear and whatnot? But, you know, we, we, we didn't always, we, he didn't, whatever, you know, sometimes he would provide specific things and sometimes not, but, but yeah. Um, also too, I don't remember, but I'm sure that that exchange of Bible verses, I've seen that in movies before. Like, you know, I mean, what's truly original these days, we're all borrowing, stealing that kind of thing, appropriating but I've, I've seen it somewhere before. I remember years ago, I remember thinking, oh man, two people are trading Bible verses. So um, I'd love to be able to take credit. I mean, who, who can take credit for anything these days? We're all, everything is, uh, we're extrapolating from every conversation we've had, right. every every film we've seen, every song we've listened to. But um, you, know, you try to be original, you try to do something interesting and hopefully you can execute it well. And at the right. end of the day, you know, when 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 you've got, Thomas J. Ryan and Kevin Corrigan going back and forth. Um, it, 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 it's easy to execute it, you know. That oh, they're yeah. doing they're doing all the work, you know. They made so. it look easy. Yeah, my painting yeah. teacher in college uh, said artists feed off of each other, and that's so true. At least for me and in, in my art, I mean, everything I do is inspired by something. You know, you start with imitation and try to uh, make it original <laughs> somehow, yeah. make it your own. And uh, I, I was, you know, what I was impressed with with this film is I went in pretty skeptical because I'm a former Catholic. I grew up Catholic, and you know, I sue the Catholic Church. And um, I don't know. I have my own baggage that I bring to yeah. a film like this. And also, it's clearly <laughs> the title of the film is not an action film. This is not a, a zombie film yeah. or something. So yeah. I'm like, okay, what am I going to, what am I getting myself into here? But compared to your prior work, you have this, almost farcical approach to films, sometimes in the comedy and the timing and the delivery of the lines and the, the storylines and the characters. Hilarious. You know, a lot of great comedy that you've done and, and also compelling, controversial, very original stuff. So I was not expecting Scenes from an Empty Church to be a solid mainstream drama nice. slash comedy. I've heard it described as a spiritual comedic journey. And I think another podcaster said that about this film, but it was uh, just a really nice change in tone. And I don't know if it's just a new stage in your artistic journey where you're looking at storytelling a little differently, but I was just really impressed with how great this film was from the standpoint of the relationships. Like this is not about the Catholic religion. Mm -hmm necessarily just like the walking dead is not necessarily about zombies you know it's about relationships yeah. and priests are in the movie and their characters but you really get 
deep into who these people are. What you're doing is you're exposing the humanity of every character in this film, good and bad. You know, with Craig Bierko's character, the sinner, mm -hmm. you're just kind of jarred by, by yeah, seeing yeah. his humanity or lack thereof. And with these priests, you see how human they are. And it's just a wonderful, heartwarming, funny, charming story. I'm not saying that that's unexpected, but just the tone of the film compared to your prior work surprised me. Yeah, I was inspired to make something a little bit more dramatic just because we were all going through COVID collectively and it felt redundant to be cynical, which I normally am very cynical, and, it, and, and to be... Um, uh, to to lash out or to complain or to say this is what's wrong this is why this happened like it was right. like let's make something that's hopeful because that seemed like it was needed you know and that's mm -hmm. just what I, I don't kind of fight whatever I'm feeling I just kind of write whatever I'm feeling and it felt like the right thing to do there were times where I had I tried to make the script a little bit more absurdist or, or, or even a little darker at times or more absurdist because that's uh, and very much funnier at times because that's kind of how I re respond to fear, fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of everything. You talk about anxiety about names. I have anxiety about everything. And thus it comes out as mocking everything because that is my way of being able to deal with it. That's my therapy, you know, making mm -hmm. fun of everything. Right. And I had some of that in the script a lot more actually. And, and again, the actors who really respected the material and what we were trying to do, they helped me strip that stuff away. They thought it kind of, trivialize the movie a little bit, especially in the Craig Bierko scene. The Craig Bierko scene was a lot more comical and absurdist in, in, in early, earlier iterations of it. And everyone said, look, this thing is going to play. It shouldn't play funny. We should play it straight. Don't make it so jake jokey. Strip out the joke. I mean, at the end of the day, putting jokes in a movie is very self-indulgent. You know what I mean? If you have the audience's attention, and I, I just think the Craig Bierko scene is just one of the most just startling and shocking and and it has a lot to say about the hypocrisy of the catholic church the hypocrisy of salvation uh i think it's beautiful and brilliant um and because of everybody's involvement i think the whole film is that way i'm really proud of the movie but uh yeah i was just responding to what we were going through you know what i mean and also mm -hmm. listening to everybody's input as i've gotten older i'm I, you know, there's this, there's a sense of like, okay, I've said a lot of stuff in my movies. And it's like, from my point of view, my skewed point of view of being a, a 49 year old single man who is afraid of relationships and maybe afraid of commitment and wants to commit to his own artistic pursuits. I think I've maybe said everything I have to say about that stuff, you know? So now as I get older, it's like, I don't have kids from which to inform a new perspective. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's like, so I need to, I have to, I, I have to listen more to the people, if they will give me input, if I can share my scripts and they'll, and they'll, and they'll give me ideas and they'll allow me to use some of those ideas. I mean, you have, I, I, you know, if you're writing scripts very quickly, you have to just listen to the input of people. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like if I was spending four or five years on this, that was seriously researched and I was really delving into it. That's another matter. But because we're making these things quickly, it's like we want the script to be as, as good as we can possibly get it. And what the fuck do I know from my very limited, you know, um, point of view, I have to open it up. So and that's what I've been doing. That's what I'm going to be doing in the future is kind of trying to like make a writer's room of sorts. You know what I mean? And giving people credit, you know what I mean, for 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 helping with the story or, or with the script when, right. when necessary.
Paul Reiser. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Paul Reiser. I asked Paul. I said, Paul, do you want? I'll give you a script writing credit on this. He's like, No, no, I don't want my my name. To, you know, you just maybe because WGA stuff. You know, like he's right. in the, the writers' guild. But you know, my my mother died about six months ago, which is you know was which is sad and terrible. Oh. And uh, yeah, it was very sad. But I Sorry feel like it, it's it's changed me too. I do want to make movies that are. I want to make a movie about my mom. I want to make a movie about what she meant to me. I want it to be funny. I want it to be ridiculous. I also want it to be, you know, sad. I want it to be about my grieving process. I think I, I do want to do that. I'm, I'm right working on a novel. My mom is in the novel. She, she has to be there. I want to bring her back in some way. I mean, it's a horror novel. So mm-hmm. something terrible happens to her at the end, but like in a comic, <laughs> it's a comical way. I love her, but you know, she, she has to die in the, yeah. in the book. So I feel like as I get older, I don't want to spin my wheels. I don't want to repeat myself. I, I, and in the movie I'm going to make in this winter is going to be kind of similar to summer of blood in the sense of horror comedy. Cause summer of blood was a very funny, I think absurdist vampire film. And I want to make an absurdist slasher film about the current cultural climate. And, I, but, but I feel like I, it's a very low budget film. And I feel like it's just been, festering inside of me since being some very positive with scenes from an empty church, very abstract and, and, and weird with the French movie that's coming out. It's like, well, I just, I have, I need to say this particular thing about this particular subject matter. And which is, it's extremely asinine and absurd, hopefully it's smart, you know, mm-hmm. absurd and smart. But after that, it's like, okay, if I keep making movies, I would like to make something that's extremely dramatic or straight or or a children's movie you know what i mean yeah um i I definitely want to go in that vein because those things are what makes it all interesting and fun you know the beautiful thing about making a movie every year or two uh is that it's all it's always a new experience i kind of compare it to like having a startup company and, and getting investors and creating a startup and you know it's fun that you sometimes a startup is successful. Most of the time it's not um, for at least for me, but every year we get to try it again. And so what makes making movies fun and interesting and curious is the chance to go in new territories. Right. And uh, so that is the goal and the hope is to use whatever grief I experienced or whatever memories I have of my mother or whatever else is the next phase, a post COVID phase, or maybe a phase where it's about, music or, or just playing music or making an album or or writing a novel i want to keep making movies but at the same time there are different chapters and it's like okay maybe it's time to focus on something else for a while you know as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes and for many of them we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place our newsletter you can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So I've followed a lot of artists on social media, and I've talked to a lot of artists since the pandemic began. I I was uh, covering Sundance as uh, a member of the press in, in January of 2020, right when the pandemic was hitting. And so I... I transitioned into talking to artists sort of, um, you know, that, that contrast before and after of pre pandemic, post pandemic was very stark. And what I picked up on was artists responded in two different ways. One, they shut down creatively because they just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with whatever was happening in the world 
and also their internal world. They just couldn't keep those two things going at the same time. You, however, right after the pandemic started, leaned into whatever was happening and folded it into your creative process immediately. Same thing with the death of your mother. Uh, and my condolences, by the way, I lost my oh, father and, and uh, losing a parent is, is never easy. But um, you use that just like you did with the pandemic, fold it into your creativity, start writing a novel and, um, and, and turn that into something creative. Wh where do you think that comes from? Hmm. I, for me, I feel like I kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say this as a way of like trying to get sympathy or anything like that. I, I feel like I'm a generally a, a pretty decent guy. I think I'm maybe a little selfish at times and I'm a little self-indulgent. I want to be a little bit more humane and a little bit more giving and generous, but you know, I, I kind of, there's this kind of existential crisis that I'm always in. I don't want to sound pretentious. You can call me out on this, which is like, life is meaningless. The, like there's no, there's no point, especially since my mother died. But even before that, it's like, I hate myself and, and, and feel like I'm a bad person. And like, and like, I, and I put up a good front, you know, I'm around friends. I can be funny when I'm drinking, I can make jokes and, and then I can make people feel good. And I, and I genuinely like that. I like people and I like being around people, but I also have this just like sadness, man, that it's like, uh, I don't talk about a lot. But when I'm making something, it might be as simple as the endorphins that are released. When I'm making something, all the dread goes away momentarily. Like as I'm writing a song or as I'm working on something or drawing a picture and, and writing a script and finishing a script, I just feel I, I hate myself a little less, you know, than I normally do when I'm making work mm. and whatever meaning there is to life or there's not. I think for me personally, I, my work has meaning to me, like for better or worse, if no one cares, it's like, ah, oh, I finished something. I accomplished something. I just feel like creating something has value, whether or not it's out in the world. And, and I've always just gotten a lot of joy from it. You know, it's one of the few things besides drinking, you know, and you, and you can't do that forever and you can't do that every day or you shouldn't at least, but yeah. creating art every day gives me the 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 um the 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 the, ca the caf the caffeine that I need for the spiritual caffeine that I need you know to to feel good about myself and, and I've gotten to the point where if I'm not making something creatively I feel I feel guilty I feel bad I have a really hard time just not working because maybe it's I don't know what it is I I I I didn't always have it. I was always kind of creative, but I wasn't like a workforce insane person that like I am now. And I don't want to be, I'd like to like, and it's not about ambition. I don't care about money. I used to care. Like you always want people to see your films, your movies to get reviewed and you want to have success. But now I'm at a point where, well, that's, I, I'm not, I don't care if that happens anymore. It's just about the work. It's about the process being around. I mean, also too, I love being around people. And when you make films, you are, doing something collectively with a group of people. It's like, you haven't made a film yet, right? Like no. you're going to discover the, for better or worse, be careful what you wish for the heroin, the, the fix that comes with that. You know what I mean? I mean, look, you play music, you know, what the fix is all about, you know, the, the absolute right. enjoyment you get from that. So right. it is connected to that. And during the pandemic, I went into overdrive. It was insane. I'm not bragging, but I, I finished a, a graphic novel that I was, I've been working on for on and off for, for about 
15 years that I, I've wow. set aside for five years ago. It's like I haven't worked on it for five years. And I finished. It's a 250-page graphic novel. I love it. I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. I can't get it published, and it maybe never get published. But I, but I'm like, I finished it. It's done. Thank yeah. God. I um, I wrote a children's book with uh, the director David Gordon Green, who's directing the new Halloween Kills movie. We oh, did wow. an adaptation of the original Halloween. We did an ha- uh, an adaptation for children of it's like a Dr. Seussian. T- not comparing it to Dr. Seuss. Dr. Right. Seussian type children's book. Well, where we adapted the original John Carpenter's Halloween for a children's <laughs> book. And it was fun. It's, you know, I think very limited number of copies were made. It exists. We did it. It got published by a new publisher. It's great. We did that. Made uh, scenes from an empty church. Uh, I'm in this project now with an old friend of mine from Atlanta, Matt Hoffman. And, and we do this thing where we, we, I've been friends with him since college, right? 30 years ago. We went to college together. He got me playing guitar. He bought a guitar, showed me how to play a few chords. I was hooked. I started playing. We've been in a healthy competition ever since. Back in college, it was about like who could charm the women and make them all laugh. And I was like, well, he's got a guitar now. I need to get one too (laughs) because I can't let him steal the limelight, right? So we're doing this thing now since January where where I'll I'll write a song and he'll write a song and we'll record it. And it'll be a gnarly kind of, you know, you know, kind of a sloppy song. And every two weeks, every fortnight, we share the song with each other. And we critique each other's songs. And we're both, we're not, we're, we're not, we're, we're, this is not grand, delusions of grandeur, trying to be rock stars or folksy. Right. It's like just doing it just because I'm like, I, he's going to listen to my song. I'm going to listen to his song. We've always been pretty good songwriters. I mean, what a relative, you know, relative, you know what I mean? And it's been great. It's, here we are. We're, we're in uh, September, end of September. We I think we're on song 17 now. We've had 17, 17 songs each. And when the year is up, we're going to find the 10 or 12 best songs that each of us have done. We're going to re-record them and we'll have an album, you know, for posterity. Oh, Not because awesome. we think something's going to happen, but every week it's like, we don't know what the song's going to be like, what it's going to sound like. Every, every couple of weeks, there's different themes, um, different, um, different voices start coming out. Like we have different styles, like that, that like out of the 17 or so songs, He'll have three or four different styles. He's starting to kind of figure out and they're starting to blossom. I've got about two or three different styles of music, different voices that come out, as you know, with music. And it's just exciting to discover all that. Like the, the act of painting on a canvas, it, it goes with all, it's all painting on a canvas. And that act of discovery, oh man, like what a rush, you know what I mean? And it's just beautiful. I, I feel like honored and grateful that... I still want to do it. You know, I, yeah. my biggest fear is that's always been the bit of fear of having kids too. It's just like, if I had kids, I'm like, if I I'd want them to have good things, I'd have to work to make the living to make sure that they're provided for. I wouldn't want there to be stress regarding that, but right. Oh man. If I wanted to keep making creative stuff and I wouldn't able be, wouldn't be able to do that, the misery I think that I might be going through. Um, I don't know. I might need medication to get through it. You know you what I mean? You might make like, your kids miserable too. I mean, yeah, no, for sure. I, I think yeah. one of the reasons I've avoided getting married is that I, I think, I, I mean, look, I, 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 it's a lot to put a woman through, you know what I mean? Me <laughs> dealing with me, you know, I mean, I've definitely, I've, I've, I've dated women and I think I've inspired them and I'm still really best friends with my ex-girlfriend of seven and a half years. And as much as I think, um, I've been a positive influence on her. I've put her through some emotional, you know, but she's an artist too. And if that's part of it, like it's sadness is I think part of the disposition of a being a human being 
but it's definitely part of, I think, again, I think it's part of the fuel of an artist. I think um, that's why during COVID, I, there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read called Against Happiness. I talk about this book all the time. Mm-hmm. These rules apply during COVID for me. Against Happiness, Eric Wilson wrote the book. I've read it three times. I don't, I don't read a lot of self-help books. And this isn't really a self-help book. It's more so poetic polemic on the nature of sadness and melancholy and how mm-hmm. melancholia is a source for creation. A lot of times we're all going to be sad. We're never going to get through sadness. Don't medicate it. Some people need to be medicated. Obviously if there's a physiological problem, but as an artist, sadness can be great fuel, you know, to create from. And I think during COVID for me, there would that maybe that's, maybe that's just it. The simple answer is I'm a sad person who maybe doesn't act sad on the surface, but I'm, I have a yeah. sadness and, and during COVID, it, it really felt like, oh God, to get through all this, I need to work and right. get to get through it. I feel lucky in that regard. I know a lot of people who were not productive and I remember trying to convince them, you've got to do this. It'll make you feel better. But yeah, people are different, you know? I can't help but make the connection between your comment about not wanting to have children and the Room 104 episode with Josephine Decker. Oh yeah. Where that's the entire episode. Is, yeah, yeah. Uh, not to give it away if people haven't seen it yet, but I mean, that's the main theme throughout the episode. Was your personal view of children and not wanting children part of the equation there, or is that just coincidence? Well, Josephine, I remember when she was making that, she wanted to have a she was wanting to have a child very badly. She was wanting to find someone to have a child with. I can't remember if I was part of that conversation ever. We might have like joked about it because she and I are, are, are close friends. We were close. We don't talk we when we see each other, it's like great friends. We don't talk each other to each other that often. Um, I love her greatly, I, and I've always been kind of in love with her in a lot of ways. And, and she kind of knew no so. I think Josephine knew my attitudes about uh, just in my movies too, Summer of Blood and Richard's Wedding and, and Applesauce. There's always, I think there's always a, there's kind of a jocular fear of those kind of commitments. And she's always known that I've been like uh, playfully against all that stuff while she's been earnestly, she was wanting to have a kid at the time. And she and I just have a comfortable rapport. And uh, so when she came to me, I think there was this idea of like, you'd be perfect for playing the husband who doesn't want to have kids because I know how you are already. I know your disposition right. and your aversion to it. Um, so yeah, I think she may have picked me because of that. Yeah, for sure. And also because we we're close and, uh, and, and she was comfortable with me and, and I'm comfortable with her and, uh, so, yeah, but you know, and we co-wrote the, she had the whole story and the outline kind of figured out. And then we both did a pass of the script. She do it. She wrote the first draft. I did a pass of the script. She'd do another pass of the script where she basically ripped out all the stuff that I put in there. She put a, left a few of those things in there. But yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a nice, beautiful, amazing project. I had a lot of fun doing that with her. I tried to talk her out of casting me because I, <laughs> I had imposter syndrome. And I was like, Josephine, <laughs> you need to find a, a real actor who's, who, who, you know, who can, you know, who, whose name means something. And she's right. like, no, I want you. And I was flattered and it was amazing. And I'm always trying to get out of acting gigs. So when people cast me, I'm always shocked that people cast me. I think I'm really good at, at playing my own personality with dialogue that I've written. I think I'm, right. I'm pretty good about that. But um, when it comes to acting somebody else's dialogue, but we, we improv, I mean, we had the script, but we improv the hell out of that, you know? So. Yeah. Well, you, you have a charisma and I, I don't know if 
anyone's ever brought this up, but you have like a Zach Galif- Galifianakis oh, yeah, type said of that, yeah. per- charisma. He's from where, you know, he's, he's from North Carolina. I, I know that. Very yeah, close so. to where I grew up. Like he's from Wilkesboro, which is very, very close to where I, where I grew oh, up. That's, you know? that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, you have this charisma on camera and a way of delivering, like, you know, I look at um, this, the robbery scene in the Bing Rame short is like a perfect example of how in a very short period of time you can go from charming to very dark to charming again. Yeah. And just this seamless transition and and also be hilarious at the same time. So I think your acting is great, but, um, you you know, maybe you're uh, being hard on yourself. I appreciate it. What we're trying to do with this new movie in the fall is we're trying to be really, really dark. We're going to try to find a way to be extremely hopeful in the in the darkest of times, you know, at, making seats from an empty church, it's definitely I turned a corner. I don't want to make something that's so bleak that there's not a there's not a glimmer of hope, you know right. what I mean? And with scenes from an empty church, we definitely didn't want to make a movie that glorified the Catholic Church without you know holding it to task a little bit and challenging it a little bit, which is what the second half of the movie is, which I think is a beautiful way to challenge some of the aspects of the Catholic Church without being disrespectful. We didn't want to be disrespectful. We wanted to address again um child abuse which is the which is the Craig Bierko character without being on the nose about exactly. it. You know exactly. I mean? Yeah. That's what so, I like as much as the Catholic Church is an easy target. Easy targets are not interesting or compelling yeah. to me. You know, yeah. so that's what was so cool about it is you humanize this aspect of the Catholic Church in a way that it just created and I hate to use the word mainstream because I, I don't know if that's an insult to you, but it no, just- No, 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 I mean, there's it, wonderful stuff on mainstream. I mean, there's great, brilliant stuff on mainstream. Yeah, it just yeah. felt like this is this is actually a, like a Hollywood studio film. That's yeah. what it felt like, you know? Oh, nice, N- yeah. Not that executives were, you know, changing things that, sh- that shouldn't have been changed, but it just like felt like, wow, this actually has a lot of substance to it. And maybe the best way to put it is broad appeal. Like, yeah. I think this is going to appeal to a lot of people as opposed to like the mumblecore movement, which is very specific, you know? We were, I, you know, I have so many on Facebook, all of so many old friends from Taylorsville, North Carolina, who are still very, very strong Christians, right? And Baptists. And I thought, I, I assumed that I was trying to make a movie that I thought they would enjoy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that that was never, that tried to challenge them a little bit, that was never disrespectful. I just don't, you know, I, I look, every, most people are good people. Most preachers are good people. Most, you know, uh, Muslims and Christians and 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 re- Republicans are, are good people. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, or and Democrats. I mean, most are are good. They're decent. We all want the same thing. When I made the misogynist, I remember thinking the exact same thing. It was like I could go after, you know, um, people that I disagree with politically. But it's like, that is an easy target. Like the misogynist was going after kind of everybody, you know? I made this movie called The Misogynist. That, and the idea was I'm going to go after the things I love, which is, you know, progressive politics or, or, or liberalism. I don't know if I love liberalism. I, I, progressiveness, I think, is always good. Um, go, uh, You know, and I disagree with Republicans, and I, I wanted to skew them, skewer them a little bit. But it was mm-hmm. mainly... It's an easy target for, for if, you're, if you're a left-leaning person, the right's easy target. Bit harder to go after the things to to be self deprecating to go after the things that you love you know not right. hard for me I've always been self deprecating that's the thing about the South the South has always been a very 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 good at like mocking themselves making fun of themselves you know like maybe because of the humility of, of of losing the Civil War I don't know what, what it all <laughs> you know it comes from but there there's you know yeah for sure 
So. Yeah, that's funny. You know, the misogynist, I intended to watch it, and then I read the synopsis, and it literally just triggered me because it brought me back to election night. Oh, no, night. a lot of you people. Know. Listen, also, too, I mean, going back to the mainstream of the church movie, I think the church movie is very accessible to people, but also it might be too soon. And a lot of people living through COVID are like, I don't want to experience COVID right now. Definitely when the misogynist came out, the idea was like, we're living through the Trump nightmare. I might say this. I don't want to disrespect you if you're you're not a Trump supporter, I'm assuming. No, right? yeah. no, yeah, no, for sure. Very left, now, very man, left because guy. we're living through the nightmare. I don't want to be reminded of it. This is way too soon. Maybe it'll be appreciated later on. And maybe the church movie too. The New York Times, when they reviewed scenes from an empty church, they gave us a very dismissive um, review as if we were being irresponsible by making a movie during COVID. And by making a movie about COVID, they called it redundant, you know? Oh, and listen, I can't disagree with yeah. I, Well, yeah, I think the movie should be seen. Actually, I thought the movie should be the kind of movie you watch that would almost be like comforting, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To let you know, listen, things are going to be all right. We're all living through this. Mm-hmm. I remember when COVID started, I guess last year, there was that Steven Soderbergh movie uh, about... Um, I can't remember the name of it now, Jesus Christ. Uh, but it was it's about like a pandemic that happened. This movie was about 10 or 12 years ago. And mm, Kate Winslet said mm. it. I can't remember the name oh, of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not uh, Outbreak, but it's. I think it might be one word. If you can look that up. And this movie is, oh my God, the global pandemic that happens in this movie is horrific. Millions and millions and millions of people are dying. And, and there's chaos in the streets and the foundation of structure of, Capitalism falls apart. I mean, like the streets are filled with debris, the whole fabric of like, it's like martial law, basically. But then everything does start to fix itself and start to get better because of whatever, the vaccine. And I remember watching that movie and, and I was comforted watching it. It was shocking and a little scary. I guess it was made in 2010. Rooney Mara is in it. Kate Winslet. I can't re- fucking remember the name of the movie. So it was Steven um, Soderbergh? Soderbergh directed it. Yeah. Look at what he, what he directed in 2010, 8, 2004. Oh, I'm looking at it. He's producing. Gosh, he's got so many credits. Well, the direct, oh, the Contagion. Direct, Contagion. Contagion, right. Yeah, that's so it. So I remember watching that, and it was like comforting. And, and it was, it, it, everybody was, a lot of people were watching it at the time. So that kind of contradicted this idea that it's too soon. We're all going through it. We shouldn't watch it. Um but, you know, uh, I, I think it's a, a lovely movie. And I, we were trying to make something that was accessible to a lot of people that Catholics would appreciate, non-believers would appreciate. As you were saying, it's not a movie necessarily about religion. It's a movie about people, humanity, about being in the same room with people, the the importance of the soul versus the body, like uh, all these different aspects, you know, things that, that are, there's a lot of crossover, whether or not you're a devout Christian or you know the Bible. These are all elements that we can relate to. And again, I mean, it's not the deepest yeah. movie in the world, and it's not supposed to, because it's, uh, you know, it's not a movie for polymaths or intellectuals. It's a movie for everyone, you know? like Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's too soon at all, because I don't think that even today, people have processed the trauma, the collective trauma that we've all gone through. Yeah. The isolation, the quarantine. But I found it really refreshing to actually see the the trauma being processed in real time during the yeah. pandemic and knowing that there was actually a pandemic going on at the time. So you, yeah, you're yeah. sort of like trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. How are they doing this? Um, and, to but, be, to, and, and to see, sorry to interrupt. You yeah, finish your ahead. thought. 
What no, you no, see people also too engaging in conversations and, and moments of joy and humanity while it's all happening. You know, we're not all just blistered by ourselves, shivering, saying, This is terrible, what's gonna happen? We need people, we need to see each other, we need to right. share life and share our views and share our fears and also share optimism for the future. I mean, that was definitely what we were trying to do, you know. What was the thought process about the scene with the soul? Because that's the one scene that kind of took it it turned the movie in a different direction that made it perhaps more of an art film at that point but what were your thoughts about that scene did you have any trepidation about including it and what was the creative process like for saying yes we need this scene and i i really loved it by the way so oh thank you uh yeah i'm glad that you one of my favorite scenes in the movie yeah yeah Yeah. it's beautiful well i mean from the from the marketing standpoint you could say well we need a big special effects scene to put in the trailer (laughs) so that people so they'll have a reason to watch it you know what i mean um uh i i you know that that's not what the way it was designed although i'm always trying to work in a couple of special effects in movies if i can if they're justified if they're not forced you know yeah i guess the idea was the idea of knowledge and um, being privy to knowledge, maybe that you don't that you don't maybe necessarily want to have. Like mm-hmm. it's better to have the mystery. Like if someone was going to tell me my future or how long I was going to live to be, the last knowledge that I want. You know what I mean? If I right. found out I was going to live to be, I, I don't want to. I just don't want to know. I'm scared of psychics. I'm scared of the idea of not some certain knowledge I don't want. You know. Mm-hmm. So the idea was. What's the foundation of, of, of belief, Catholicism or Christianity or maybe any kind of stru- a, a lot of structured religion is this idea of the afterlife. If, if we knew that we could continue, it would be easy to have faith. You know what I mean? If we knew that 100 percent of we knew there was an afterlife, it would be easy to to there is no faith. You would just you would, you know, if there's I, it's, it's hard to put into words because right. the idea is, um, you know, thinking that knowledge will, will grant you wisdom and happiness. And the opposite happens when Paul finds out that he has, he, it, if I, I don't know. It doesn't prove that he has a soul. It could be just been energy source. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the idea was playing around with the idea of knowledge and, and what is real and not real misinformation. What you think, you know, is not what, you know, what, once you learn something, you realize you don't know anything even more. So, you know what I mean? I feel like as I get older, the dumber I get and the less that I know, you know what I mean? And right. that's kind of, that might've been at the end of the day, just the, the kind of the, the, the catalyst, the seed was we don't know anything. And it, you know, science can pose new, the discovery of one thing just poses a whole new set of questions. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I'm not saying we don't know anything. Of course there's, there's absolute, um, importance of science i feel like an idiot talking about this stuff because like because it was a very abstract and weird nebulous thing that's what the soul is and um it's funny when i wrote the scene and i and i talked about it with my uh cgi and now I'm, I'm avoiding the question altogether my cgi is like oh this sounds like my cgi guy is like oh i read the scene it sounds like astral projection this gets an astral projection scene i'm like i don't know what the fuck that is what is astral projection <laughs> and he told me because he's fascinated by it you know right. but but you know, if we have an energy source that keeps going, like for me, the only thing I could get behind, not the only thing, in an ideal world, I would love that as sentient beings, we go on in the afterlife 
and I can talk to you and we can have another conversation. And 300 years from now, and I run into you somewhere on a, on a grassy hill and we see each other. It's like, it's good to see you again. Oh my God, I, I haven't seen you in a hundred years and we still, we're still alive and scrape. Hard to imagine that, but that would be a nice comforting thought. And the idea that we still remain who we are and that we can take it with us, our personalities or who we are, which right. is a whole other host of, uh, of implications that come with that. Because is it nature versus nurture? When, when our souls are born, do we already have that? Do we already have that when our souls enter a, a, a body? Do we already have our personalities? This is absurd. You're, I mean, you're a, you're a Catholic. You would, you can say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels here. The bottom line is, I don't know what I was trying to say. The idea that the that we're energy sources that when we die we might fly into the stratosphere and, and join this tor- torque of energy that is the universe. Okay, sure, maybe that's a possibility, and maybe that's all the electricity that runs the world, and maybe that's who we are. We're just a torque of energy. That's not comforting because because whatever I want to I want to be someone I want to be an individual you know part of my whole mo and making films and everything is not getting married is like retaining my individuality but then again if I'm such a self-absorbed narcissistic asshole why I should have kids to keep it going because I want I think the world deserves I don't know it's it's a whole (laughs) idea of things you know obviously I'm not I'm I feel like so caffeinated and worked up right now I I know I'm giving you no answer here I apologize no it's a great answer because if there is no concise easy way to put it then it's just organically felt right at the time and and it worked and I think it's a great scene I love I forget her name I love the actress who was spraying the perfume and oh Ava Dora Paul yeah put her in a lot of movies she's in my French movie coming out she's in Black Magic for White Boys she's in Catfight I love her I'll put her in everything that I can she's fantastic she's a Dutch actress she's really actress she's really really wonderful I tend to write from a place of not quite from a mysterious place and, and and not quite knowing what why I'm doing it or 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 where it's coming from I feel like if I know too much about it, it takes the fun out of it. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. demystifies it a little bit. Now, obviously, I, 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 I do know once you start rewriting, things make sense. The themes come out. But I guess in the first drafts, I don't want to I don't want to intellectualize or to think about it too much because I'm like, I don't know. Um, it just I, I like the sense of mystery and discovering something about myself and the way I view the world or whatever the universe is brought me as i'm writing not to be too romantic i i I believe there is i don't know you're pulling from something i like to be surrounded by books you know i i think you can pull from air from everything around you you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i i I feel like you could say hey the universe is writing this sometimes it feels like it is you know like god i I, having a really great dream with a complex amazing dream and you're like this is brilliant and I, you know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to have this dream. You know what I mean? That's also kind of talked about in Richard Linklater's Waking Life. You know, which is like, where is this coming from? I don't, I, I don't. I'll read a script sometimes that I've written it, written and been like, I'm not smart enough to have written that. Obviously, I'm pulling from somewhere. <laughs> I'm stealing from somewhere. You know, but uh, yeah. but if I have to think about it too much. That's the thing about comedy too. If you force the joke, if you think about the joke too much, sometimes it feels like. Uh, Obviously, you're trying to work it in there. It mm-hmm. just kind of comes. Are you you play? So you're are you a songwriter too? Yeah, I write songs. So yeah. do you? I mean, pretty often. No, not not often enough. I'm so busy with work and family that I make that my excuse for not for not yeah, writing yeah. as as much as I should. Anyway, 
Well, but I feel, for me personally, I just feel like if the song doesn't come relatively easy, uh, at least the first kind of the, the, the basic foundation of it, you know what I mean? Right. I feel like it's not really there. Uh, if I have to think about it too much, you know? Right. I and, think some of the best songs were written, you know, in a matter of minutes or hours as yeah. opposed to, or at least you know, the structure, days or the weeks. chords, the chords and the, and the basic foundation of what the basic core of the song you know come very right. quickly inspiration comes from nowhere that's why you have to have a you know a, a pad by your bed or or or, or something to dictate while you're driving record your ideas with because exactly ideas come from yeah. you don't even know they're just they pop in there you know they're ephemeral and it's beautiful yeah. yeah and it's beautiful and it's amazing ephemeral great word absolutely and it's and, and they're beautiful and it's like Again, being grateful that I still want to do it, that I still can do it. I always get scared before I start writing, thinking, what if this is the time that just doesn't happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Just words don't come, or I'm thinking about it too much, or I've lost my nerve. Because I got, I lost my nerve making movies for a decade, and it's like, I I can't believe I didn't make movies for, for you know, seven, eight years. And Anyway, you're going to... Well, I, I was going to anecdotally tell you about a prior guest who is a songwriter her name is sue ennis s-u-e-e-n-n-i-s and if you want to check her out she has a website but she has workshops and she will do one-on-one -on -one zoom sessions with you for writing songs and she wrote a lot of the heart songs so oh, you know wow. like cool. barracuda and yeah. uh, you know magic man and crazy on you and, and amazing dog, yeah i think she wrote dog and butterfly too and I don't know if she wrote all of those songs that I just listed off, but she was instrumental to writing a lot of the heart songs and lives in Seattle. But if you are interested in the structure of songwriting, because there are building blocks of songs that I'm discovering mm -hmm. for how to put together a song. And it's very similar to probably how to write a joke, you know, if mm -hmm. you're a comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and she's just a genius at that. So if you want to check her out. Um, oh, yeah, no, you know. for sure. I just, got, I just bought a book um I tend, I, I'm afraid of like reading certain books like this because I'm like, whatever process I have for writing a song, it's it's my own unique process, I guess, I assume. Of course, you're, I'm sure it's it's not unique, but, and I got this Jeff Tweedy book about how to oh. write one good song and I'm afraid to read it. My friend Matt Hoffman is reading it. I'm afraid to read it because I'm like, what if I read it and it's like, oh, and it changes how I write music, but at the same time, what it gives me ideas that I need. You know what I mean? Right, right. Right. Stephen King's on writing. It's a oh, great, great book. book on writing because, yeah. again, it's just very egalitarian. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just like anybody can do it. Don't overthink it. Just do it. You know, it's a, a process. Everybody right. should use that process. Don't overthink it. Just let it come. Like we're a all. Ask plus chair equals writing, right? Isn't that Stephen King? Is ask, that what it asks? Ask plus chair equals writing. I think oh, that's what I he like said. that. That's good. Is that, yeah, that, that's really <laughs> funny. I like that. It's fantastic. Yeah. That yeah. I, I love that type of simple wisdom, the really pithy wisdom that you get from people like David Mamet, you know, just yeah. say the fucking lines. Yeah. Just say yeah, the fucking yeah, lines. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I don't need your backstory on this character or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Say the lines I told you or ask plus Jerry equals writing. That simplicity really is appealing to me. Uh, yeah. No, from, absolutely. Without a doubt. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my apologies for going so long, but this has been a really compelling conversation. And so I have a couple of random questions for you. Uh, Josephine Decker, going back to her, I saw her premiere of Shirley at Sundance and was just blown away by 
her and this yeah impressive yeah this film and the circle of artists that you run with and that you work with frequently and i assume are your friends like kevin corrigan and max casala and you know kevin is like i've looked at his instagram i mean he's a real artist like absolutely like fucking legit he's a genius genius. yeah he's a genius too max is too max it can can draw and paint kevin draws paints plays music musician uh amazing writer he wrote a a, a series of books that e- e- email correspondence with um Kasalak, who is a uh, sun kim moon he's a he's a musician um uh, what's his what's his name Kasalak. uh kevin is a brilliant writer everything max Casella the same way yeah those guys are true geniuses for sure so so you have this circle of folks that you work with and that you create with how important is that to your personal process that you're around that type of creativity for inspiration, for bouncing ideas off of? Because I think there's a lot of people out there, my listeners included, who maybe don't have that. They don't have access to that. They're maybe in not as progressive areas. They're not in metropolitan areas. They're you know, in, in living in the country where they don't have access to art galleries. And you're in the belly of the beast in terms of the art world. And you have been for the last 10 years. So what are your thoughts on how important that is to you and how others might be able to recreate that type of experience of being around creatives when they geographically or for other reasons just don't? If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well, living in New York has made a huge difference because it is very competitive. There's a there's a nice the, the idea of like keeping up with other people that are that are making great compelling work is keeps you going you know what i mean like there's always a sense of so and so the guy in his sundance they're having way more success than me you have to get over that They're, that's always like crippling but like let me just make something because if i'm making something i'm still i'm still there i'm still creating a body of work um when i lived in wilmington well, there was a little, there was a scene there. There were, there were people making movies there, but I felt like I was very still, still extremely creative. When I was in Durham, North Carolina for seven years, that's when I did make movies. There was not a film scene there. And that might've been one of the reasons why I wasn't making films. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what is the answer there? Move to where people are making films. That's not the answer. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, I, I you know, God, filmmaking has gotten so egalitarian and making art is, is, is anybody can take a, a canvas and paint on it. Anybody can write a story. And there are artists everywhere you go. I guess you have writers groups, right? If you're a writer, if you know, you, there's tons of musicians where you are in Washington, right? That you play right. with and whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I, I don't know how to answer that because I don't, I'd like to think that if I lived, in a cabin in the woods by myself, I would still play music and I would still maybe work on my novel. I don't know if I would make movies, but I would always create because of a need to, you know, just a, an, 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 an ineffable, ineffable desire to create. It's, it's almost hard to put into words. If you're not around, God, I mean, you, so you're talking about the small town, the folks in small rural places. Yeah, and that don't have creatives in their family and in their friend network, but they have that desire to create. The connections that you have are so amazing, and you're right there in the city where they are. I'm wondering, 
for folks that don't have that, is is there any way to, you know, have that same inspiration without that close connection like you have to other creatives? And maybe there's no good answer for it. Maybe the answer is you do have to be, <laughs> you no, do no, have no, to be course, around those no, creatives. Course. You know, the thing is, you, you of course, reading books and watching great movies and listening to great music. I mean, you're inspired by the work. That's always good, you know. Right. Um, seeing someone like, uh, you know, the Duplass brothers or other low filmmakers who made low budget things, when you see them making that kind of work, you're like, I, I read they did that for $10,000. Uh, Mark Duplass made the puffy chair for 10K. I can do that. I think watching things that are um, that can be actually accomplished, the, seeing success, watching and, and, and reading books that uh, people that have a similar voice than you, that write in the same style, writers that you like, watching movies where you know, yeah, uh, uh, that 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 are made for very low budget. If you want to be a filmmaker, and I can make that movie. I love listening to folk singers to see what someone could accomplish with like an acoustic guitar and a i listen i like listen to like like daniel johnston music you know what i mean like a daniel the documentary did you ever see the devil and daniel yeah, johnston yeah. i mean his music's so soulful even though it's it's crudely played and crudely sung because yeah. it's like but he's doing so much with just his energy and just his vitality and just with his, an off-tune piano. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's just like I listen to that. It gives me confidence to be able to play music like Jesus, I don't sing well, and I'm not a great musician, but I can string out some chords, and I have a lot of passion. So I would feel like seeing things that people are doing that inspire you, that are in your wheelhouse, that are actually like, can be accomplished. You know, with, right. with novels, there's the thing: reading great novels, it's like you don't need a lot of, you don't need any money to to write a novel. You know what I mean? You need resources and friends to get the novel published, obviously, probably, mm -hmm. but. I think it's all about being inspired and, and whatever it takes to get inspired. Again, ha against happiness, this great little 150-page poetic polemic is just tell, gives you permission to use your sadness to create from. It's all it's a salvation. It's a way out. I mean, you know, he's not the first person to have said this, and he's drawing on hundreds of books that have been written over the last epoch, uh, centuries and epochs to, to, to get to this, this thesis that sadness it can be a good thing that we could be useful um so fuck no you don't have to be in the metropolitan of course there are amazing artists everywhere you go uh, did you ever see patterson the movie patterson uh, oh uh, yeah with uh, ray romano no not ray oh, oh, no. no that's paddington which is oh, a great paddington. movie too oh, okay patterson is by um god damn it i can't believe okay i'm, fucking, I'm gonna look jim it Jar now. it's a jim jarmusch movie with uh, adam driver it's about a poet who lives in Patterson, oh, New he's Jersey. A bus he's driver, a bus right? driver. Yeah. And, you know, well, the conceit is that there were a lot of great poets that came from Patterson, you know? So maybe that they're making the point for you right there. If there are a lot of great poets there, they kind of influence each other. Um, but, you know, every small town, there's there's a couple of weird fringe artists there, right, who are making their painters. There's a painter everywhere you go. They're musicians. And there's got to, you know, in my, in my hometown of Taylorsville, North Carolina, there's a guy named Daniel who's uh, he's a he's a filmmaker himself. And he reached out to me saying, oh, my God, there's uh, there's another filmmaker from Taylorsville. Owner, how are you? And just being from the same town connected us. Right. 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 And and I tell you, it goes a long way to watch someone's work, track them down and to tell them how much you like it. Because once you flatter them, you know what I mean? When I, the very few fans that I have that reach out to me who want to be a film, who want to be filmmakers or whatever, when they reach out to me and they've seen my work and they can talk about it, then they ask me for advice or they, they want to do a phone call, 
I'm, I'm always willing to talk to them, you know, if they've seen my work, you know what I mean? And if right. they've flattered me, and it's not all about <laughs> that, but you know, it, it endears yeah. you to them, you know right, what I mean? Right. It's like, mm-hmm. So it's like, you, you have access to so many people now. Most, some artists won't respond. A lot of them will, if they understand, you know, if, 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 if there's any kind of respect for the need of others to express themselves. And if someone's reaching out to you to say, I love your work and uh, can you, can you watch my short film and, or, or this and that, it's like, you know, it doesn't, if it take, doesn't take a lot of time and you have the time, most people will respond. And I think that might be a good rule is to reach out to people. Don't be afraid to contact people, you know, contact your heroes, your contact people that are doing things similar to what you want to do, you know? Yeah, that's so, amazing. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. great, scary. great advice. I mean, that's what I've discovered in this business too. Is just you know reaching out with a cold email to someone is is doable and it's achievable if you put a personal touch to it and you show that you know something about their work. You've done your homework, so you're yeah. not just. It's just like with anything that's that's transactional. Someone asks for something from you. What are you giving? them like what what are you showing them in terms of why they should even respond (laughs) to your request but yeah this has been a fascinating conversation i would be remiss if i did not ask you i I could not find this episode but apparently you were kicked off the doug benson Benson show yeah twice i've been kicked off twice (laughs) what happened there well, that's a, I mean, come on, that's a long, 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 <laughs> long story. There's the short story that's not that interesting. And there's the longer story with a lot of funny details where, you know, I made an ass of myself twice. Uh, but also, too, there was the there was a reason why I made an ass of myself. There were hurt feelings. There were there were people being offended. I just responded the wrong way. The first time I got kicked out of the Doug Benson show off the Doug Benson show, I was invited to a film festival called the Traverse City Film Festival in Michigan. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, um, fucking Michael Moore's film festival, right? I'm showing summer blood there in 2020, 2014 or 2015. So I got invited as soon as I got off the plane, they said, you want to be on a podcast, come be on a podcast. I was like, great. I'll be on a podcast. I I didn't know who Doug Benson was. I didn't know that it was a live show. I didn't know that he would have 300 people in the audience who were sycophantically insanely in love with him for good reason. (laughs) He's, he's funny and he's amazing. Are you a Doug Uh Benson fan yourself? I've seen his comedy. I've seen his documentary. Funny, charming, very, very funny guy. Mm -hmm. As soon as I got there, I just think it's, it's a regional festival. I think it's just going to be, you know, to us talking in a room. I didn't know we were going to go on a live stage. And then I found out everyone's drinking in the green room and everyone's getting a buzz. And I like to drink and I like to party and I'm on the show and I'm just a a logaria. I'm just talking and talking and talking. And Doug, I wish Doug would have told me to shut up because I just kept running my mouth. (laughs) And I didn't realize that this was an actual, this was going to go stream to thousands of people of his fans. And I didn't Uh know that that was going to happen. I didn't know that it was, it was important. It had value that I was ruining everyone's night on stage. Oh, no. I had, to, I would have kept my fucking mouth shut. I thought <laughs> this was about me. I thought, oh, you're going to be on a podcast. You're talking about your work. You're talking about yourself. It was absurd. I had no idea going into it, completely ignorant. And um, stoned, drunk, a buffoon, an idiot. Everybody hated me on that show. There were a couple <laughs> of people that appreciated my big, big fucking mouth. And uh, and I, and eventually like with 20 minutes left on the show, Doug kicked me off. Cause I was just being so obnoxious. I had no problem. I left the stage. And the next day at the festival, 
I approached Doug and said, Doug, because I had researched him after the show, right. and realized that he's actually, you know, a cultural icon that like uh-huh. there are people debate devotees and people who love him. And I apologized and I was contrite and I was effusive and he was so sweet and, and, and like he immediately took my apology. And we got stoned together. And I mean, the guy, the code of personality is real. He's a very, very sweet, charming guy. Yeah. Flash forward a couple of years later, and I'm on the show again, this time with Anne Heche and Sandra Oh. And talk about Catfight, yeah. And we're talking about Catfight, and Anne Heche is a mad woman, and we were drinking, and we were partying before the show, and we're on the way, and she never heard of Doug Benson either. She didn't care, <laughs> but I'm like, but I'm like, I'm like, Anne, this time, I got kicked off the show before. Let's, let's have a good time. This is his show. This is the Doug Benson show. Be respectful. We're, I mean, Anne could be very surly, you know, and she could be very... I love Anne Hage so much. I love Sandra O too, but Anne is, she's like me. She's kind of a, I mean, I'm like her, I should say. No one's like Anne. Uh, no one's like Anne Hage. What am I talking about? On the way <laughs> to the, on the way to the Upright Citizens Brigade place in, in LA, where we're going to have the live show. I'm like, Anne, it's the Doug Benson show. We got to behave. She's like, Warner, let me tell you something, motherfucker. When I'm on the show, when I'm on any show, it's the Anne Hayes show. Oh, so no. already, like, it was like, oh, my God, it's going to be insane. And then, so as soon as we got there, Doug was cool. He came outside. He greeted me. We're smoking a joint. It's all cool. We're, we're like, everything is simpatico. It's fantastic. And, you know, and I, at some point, I'm like, well, what did you think of the movie, man? Catfight. What do you think? And he's just, the way he said it. It was just so so dismissive. He said, "Oh, I didn't watch it," and <laughs> and it was like a fucking shoestring broke, like a fucking twig snapped. And I'm like, "Oh!" And it just I got dark. And things got really dark. And I thought, "This motherfucker's." Hey, listen, I'm no disrespect. Uh, Doug Benson's a great guy, but in my sense, my ego, inflated ego, and also being drunk off my ass and now stone, it's like we got Sandra O oh and Anna Hayes on the show. He should have at least watched the show, but right. I thought. I watched the movie, but I made the same mistake I made the first time. I thought it was all about me again. This time I thought it was about Anne and Sandra and us, our film. And it wasn't. Again, it was about Doug. And things got that episode is a train wreck. I mean, we were Anne and I got kicked off the show within 15 minutes. Like it was just a, it was and then Sandra, who is very she's very professional and amazing, stayed on the show, finished the show. And uh, yeah, it was a it was it was insanity. Listen, I uh, I have calmed. I I've, I've learned. I've been humbled a lot in the last four or five years from having failures in my life, uh, career-wise. Nothing humbles you more than the death of your, your, you know, one of your best friends or my mom. It's just like the idea of um, anger and rage, uh, and, and I've been able to see the selfishness of that. The the absolute weakness of being angry. The uh, something about my mom's death is giving me perspective in, in a new way. I, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's a lot of things, but um, I getting older, you know, and, and, and trying to be less self-important, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, going through COVID, getting double vax, realizing that you have to do these things for the collective good. You know what I mean? Like right, right. there, there, there's, um, whether or not, I don't know if, uh, if you're vaxxed or not, you might. Yeah. I fought it for a while because my mother died of a heart attack. She'd been vaxxed a few weeks before. I was having chest pains after she died, maybe from stress. I was terrified of getting vaxxed, you know? And ultimately, I was like, well, Jesus Christ, you you, you have to do this. You can't, you can't be so selfish. This is absurd, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and 
I don't know. Uh, a lot of different things. I, I'm still a selfish prick and self-indulgent talking here for an hour and 45 minutes or however long <laughs> we've talked. There's nothing more self-indulgent than that. But but I really like that that you want to have this discussion that we're able to talk. I, I enjoy it because it's, uh, you know, you discover things, meeting new people too. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to talk more about it. Next time we, we should do this again where I'm interviewing you because you you seem very fascinating and, 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 and sweet and a big heart. And I guess having three daughters and, and being, you know, the work that you do, which is all about this altruism and helping people and victims. That's beautiful. That's amazing work. You know, I feel like a dick talking to you. I'm like, you're a good person. I don't feel like one <laughs> in front of you, you know? Oh so. man, you're, you're very kind to say that, but I will take you up on that invitation. Perhaps when that cold dead look in your eyes premieres, we can talk again about that film or this ambitious project that you're talking about, this future film that you're about to start shooting. And, you know, it's obvious that I have really enjoyed this talk because I normally try to cut it off about an hour, just out of respect for the guest time, but I couldn't help myself just to keep going here because... Oh, man, it was blast. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. We went pretty deep on some subjects. Owner Tukel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is a real, real joy and honor. I look forward to talking to you again. And and thanks so much for having me. You know, uh, I've had a really great time. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always... Go find your dream path.